Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another chance to talk freely about these things, Lord. Um, we know this is not the case in different parts of the world. And so what a, what a gift to, to meet at the time that uh, we want to meet and in a space that um, is conducive to good discussion and consideration. And uh, Lord, most importantly, we need your Holy Spirit guiding us in this hour. Um, we, we long to be faithful to your word um, and fruitful in your world. And um, part of that means uh, having faithfulness in um, our, the sexual parts of our lives, Lord. So we thank you for this chance we've had over the last several weeks to consider these things and continue to equip and teach us uh, through your word, through your spirit, through your church um, in these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are continuing our class, Biblical Sexuality. Um, last several weeks, we've looked at homosexuality and transgenderism. We are now going to... Um, continue in both our sort of brief study of Song of Songs. If you remember at the beginning, I talked about how we're going to be using Song of Songs as our home base uh, for this class and kind of working our way through it section by section. Um, and then each section either very obviously and directly um, points towards uh, an area of sexuality that has a lot of modern significance and um, others are more indirectly. So last time uh, we started, I'll, I'll actually, I'll get to that in a minute. Let me just kind of do a quick review for us since it's been a couple weeks that we've been in Song of Songs, um, reminding you of where we've been. We, the first class, I sort of did more of a big picture introduction to Song of Songs, and I talked about um, what, what approach are we going to be taking to Song of Songs. Um, there's the spiritual approach where all it is, it's not really about human marital relationships. It's just about uh, Christ and our, our relationship with Christ. And we said that, that just taking it only in that way is, is too extreme. And the other extreme is the natural approach where it's only about you know, human marital relationships. Um, there's no what reason we should you know, connect it to our relationship with Christ. And we said that's also extreme. And so we're, we talked about we're going to be taking a blended approach to Song of Songs. Um, starting with the natural reading of it being about human, relation, human marital relationships, but then applying it to our relationship with Christ at well at different points. And then we looked at section 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. We see the woman expresses her longings for, for the man, but also some of her insecurities. Then the man affirms his love and attraction to her, and we used that, and we talked about body image that day. Then the next section of Song of Songs was 115 through 27. We see things starting to heat up between them, but then there's that kind of famous phrase where it says, do not stir love until it awakens, and we talked about how that flies in the face of everything our culture tells us about sex. So we used that class to talk about this reality of expressive individualism. That's the way a lot of, a lot have des a lot of people have described um, sort of the spirit of our of our society. So we talked a lot about the dynamics of expressive individualism there and how that impacts, um, you know, views on sexuality. Then Song of Songs continues from 2.8 to 3.5 we looked at. Uh, we see the man really, um, get it, he's just really ready to, to make this relationship into a marriage. And he's pursuing the woman. 
Um, and she is sort of, there's this image of her being inaccessible. She's up in the room. It kind of feels a little bit like Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet's in the window and he can't get to her. Um, and the woman says, no, we need to wait. It's not time yet. And she sends him back away. Um, and that'll actually come up again in our passage today, that, that moment. Uh, but then we see her having a hard time singleness. So we talked about singleness a couple weeks ago. And then um, from 3.6 to 5.1, many believe is describing the, the final consummation where they, they become, the, the marriage happens, the wedding happens. And we looked at the first half of that last time. And we use sort of this example of a, a marriage in the Bible between a man and a woman, kind of, you know, pointing towards the biblical definition of marriage. And then we use that to talk about how there's challenges, very significant challenges to the biblical definition, definition of marriage. Um, and two of those examples we looked at the last five weeks were homosexuality and transgenderism. And so we walked through that. Now we're coming back to this section um, 3, 6 to 5, 1, and we're finishing it. We have gotten up to four, chapter 4, verse 7. Um, we're going to look at chapter 4, verse 8 through 5, verse 1. And we're going to see how parts of that um, naturally lead to a conversation on pornography, which is a, another relevant topic that we need to be talking about in the church as it concerns faithful sexuality. So let's dive in, back into Song of Songs. This was where we left off last time, where... Um, you know, the, the section on the wedding, it starts off with this, you know, grand metaphor where the, the, the groom describes the bride coming um, towards him, you know, in her, you know, dressed for the wedding. He describes that like a royal procession of Solomon. Um, we talked a lot about that last time. And now it's going to kind of slightly shift gears. So now he's kind of, he had been talking about just this procession, and then he started talking about her beauty. Um, You're altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And then um, it continues. Verse 8. Come away, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Senur, and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. A couple things about verse 8. Notice the emphasis on where she's come is is on where she's coming from, not where they're going. We're not, there's not going to be much discussion about where they're going. And, and most believe there's sort of this um, reference there to the mysteries of marriage. Like, we know where they've come from, but um, marriage is this journey into an unknown place. Um, and, and all these peaks, uh, these mountain peaks that it's talking about, is um, actually hearkening back to chapter 2 where, um, you know, she was inaccessible, where, you know, they, he wanted to make the relationship into a marriage, and, but he couldn't quite get to her. And so he's saying, all right, come away from these, because those, those peaks in that day were considered inaccessible mountain peaks. You couldn't get all the way to the top of them. Um, and, uh, and so he's, he's calling her away from a place of inaccessibility to now say, let's get married, let's consummate this. Um, and this is the first time on chapter 4, verse 8, where he calls her bride. So that's part of why we, we believe that this is kind of where the, the marriage is in, the, in, the, in Song of Songs. So then it continues, uh, verse 9, You have captivated my heart, my sister. I love that term, my sister. 
Uh, we've seen multiple times throughout Song of Songs that it's not just about the physical attraction, it's not just about the physical parts of sex uh, that this um, book is about. It's a companionship. It's a, it's a deep relationship, and him calling her sister shows that there's way more than just the physical. My sister, my bride, you have captivated my heart. Commentators think that a, a modern-day translation of that is you drive me crazy in a good way. Um, so you, you drive me crazy with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Verse 10, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine? Often the idea of a vineyard has come up in Song of Songs, and there's been this idea of kind of a vineyard that's not quite ready, and then a vineyard that is ready. And so wine is here is sort of this reference to a vineyard that is now ready uh, to be enjoyed, and it's this reference to their their relationship now being ready to be a marriage. So the end of verse 10, um, and the fragrance of your oils, then any spice. Verse 11, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Where does that phrase come up in a different part of the Bible? A woman's lips dripping, dripping nectar. Does anyone know where else in the Bible that phrase comes up? In a different book of the Bible? Proverbs, yes. In Proverbs 5, the forbidden woman, it says her lips drip nectar. So it's an interesting idea here when you put them, put them next to each other because, um, you know, the, the woman in Proverbs, that forbidden woman, she's drawing on some true things about, you know, sex, about relationships, about attraction. Um, but then it's, you know, the forbidden woman in chapter of Proverbs 5 is, is turning it into an unhealthy thing. So it's not, it's not that... You know, it's not the lips drifting nectar, which is a metaphor for just attraction and, and being, you know, drawn to, to someone of the opposite sex. Um, it's just doing it in the context of a marriage. And so your lips drip nectar, my bride. Uh, verse 11, honey and milk are under your tongue. Honey and milk, think of the land flowing with milk and honey. There might be a kind of a subtle reference to the promised land there. But commentators think that the, the idea of, okay, it's talking about her lips, that's more physical attraction, but the tongue is more getting at her character uh, and how she, the words she uses in her life. And so we've seen multiple times in Song of Songs where there's an emphasis not just on the physical but also on character. The woman had done that to the man, and now he's doing it to her. And then the end of verse 11, the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Verse 12, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. So in that day, um, gardens were, were uh, think of a royal garden for um, royalty for kings. They would have these gardens that often they would lock up that just for, you know, the king and, and those closest to him to access. This was a place of respite amongst their busy, crazy life. It was a place for them to um, just get some peace. And so that's the idea of a garden locked, uh, of you know, just kind of not being in a relationship, and now they're about to become in relationship and full access to each other. Um, verse 13, so now he's taking that idea of a, a garden and this fountain. He says, your shoots, and that word shoots, oh, shoot, oh yeah, I'm there. Uh, your shoots, that's a rough translation. It's kind of a hard Hebrew phrase to translate. The idea really is just your being, who you are. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon. 
with all trees of frankincense, myrrh, and aloes, with all choice spices. So let me just stop on verse 14 and 13 real quick. Uh, It's important to note that in that day, no literal garden could have had all of those spices and fruits in it, um, at least in that time. These were spices and fruits that were coming from all different parts of the known world. So to describe this garden with all these things in the same place is a, is a hyperbole. Um, it's hyperbolic, and, and there's also this sense of the Garden of Eden being portrayed here in this kind of paradise. And so it's, it's just a really beautiful, fancy way of him just showing how captivated he is by every part of her. Um, verse 15, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and a flowing streams from Lebanon. And so the idea of fruits um, and, and enjoying each other by using the idea of enjoying fruits um, has come up multiple times already, and it's been forbidden at this point, uh, up to this point. And now we see that the, the idea of the fruits of a garden is now they are about to have full access to it. And so it's just a, a poetic way of saying now they're going to enjoy their physical union. And listen to the invitation that she gives the man. Um, In the next verse, she says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. So some of the language there uh, can sound, using our modern-day kind of urban speak, can sound a little pornographic. Um, But just I I think it's important to note that in that day, uh, these words didn't, you know, have the same meaning that they always have today. So, for example, you know, the word blow upon my garden, that sounds a little pornographic, but if you remember, in chapter 2, I had mentioned that that was, in chapter 2, the man kind of comes and he's like, hey, let's get married, and she sends him away and says, no, the time is not yet. She sends him back home, and the phrase she uses in chapter 2, verse 17 is, go away, and then she says, until the day breathes. Uh, And that was her way of saying, until the time has come for us, that they weren't ready yet. And so now she's saying that day has breathed. She's talking about wind here and the wind blowing. And so now that's, that's what that's a reference to. And the groom we see wastes no time. In, in 5 verse 1, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And so they're now starting to consummate and, and become uh, enjoy physical union. And then the others say, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And uh, I love Phil Riken, his, his book on, the, on Song of Songs has been one of my resources that I've been using, and I thought he summarized kind of this whole section really well in a, in a long paragraph. So I'm kind of breaking all the PowerPoint rules by having a really big text up here, but I think it's worth it. Uh, Phil Riken says, more than this, the happy couple will not say. So he's talking about, okay, it kind of starts to describe this physical union, but it doesn't say much more. More of this, the happy couple will not say, which is part of what makes Song of Songs suitable for audiences of all ages. And these two verses, which form, so he's talking about uh, chapter 5, verse 1, which form the exact center of the song, the climax, so to speak. It has 111 lines before 5, verse 1, and 111 lines after it. The Bible brings us to the threshold of the bridal suite. Unlike our own culture, which usually brings sex way too far out into the open, and that kind of is a segue to talking about pornography, the Song of Songs takes us right to the edge. We get close enough to sense the breathtaking beauty of sexual love, the covenant marriage, 
Then the groom gently shuts the door and his bride pulls down the shade while we stand outside with the rest of the bridal party and join their friends and family in pronouncing the benediction of the covenant community, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. So I'm going to use that as a segue to pornography. Um, you know, as I said in my sermon a couple weeks ago, sex is a, a beautiful expression designed by God uh, of enjoyment between a man and a, of a husband and a wife. And pornography is when you take that, and that's supposed to be enjoyed privately. You know, Hebrews talks about keeping the marriage bed pure, and I think part of that is just keeping the intimate parts of that just to yourselves as a couple. And pornography is taking those things that are supposed to be private, um, and obviously between a husband and wife, and um, making them public, uh, amongst other things that are as you know, damaging about pornography that I'll get into in a minute. And so pornography takes the beauty of this union that is described in this chapter and ruins it and, and um, dehumanizes it, and, and amongst other things. So I'm going to now transition to, a, um, if you guys can cue up the video that I have, um, a discussion with this guy, Evan Marbury. He is a pastor. If you can leave this up, uh, can you leave it up just a little bit longer? Uh, Evan, he's doing, he is a pastor at Christ Central in Durham, in our denomination. He's a licensed counselor as well. Um, he's also getting his doctor of ministry. Um, and his doctor of ministry is basically trying to t- talk and think through how the church can come around those struggling with pornography. It's titled, Developing a Small Group Curriculum on Biblical Sexual Formation for Men at Christ Central Church Who Struggle with Pornography. So I, um, he's someone I've been building a relationship and friendship with, and um, he let me read kind of a rough draft of it, and I loved it. I said, hey, could you talk with me for a little bit, and let's record it, and I'd love to share that. So if you, can now, you can now pull that video up, and we're going to show a conversation I had with Evan about pornography. It should, be, it should be minimized on the bottom right of the, the screen. Is it, do you see the quick time? Is that, is that, got it? Okay. Great. And you can press the green button on the top left to make it full screen. All right, Redeemer, I'm here with Evan Marbury. He is one of the pastors at Christ Central in Durham. And uh, I've enjoyed building a friendship with him the last couple of years since I've been here in Raleigh. And uh, I'm just so encouraged by what God is doing through him at Christ Central uh, and just all the gifts God has given him for the church and, and even just in his counseling ministry as well. And I am so excited to have uh, Evan joining me on this conversation for our class. Evan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with our class about this important topic. Yeah, I really appreciate you asking me. Uh, I was really excited and really thankful that y'all are uh, taking the time to, to consider this topic. It's, it's big. Yeah, man. All right. Uh, yeah, I think I'd love to just start by asking, you know, the why question. Why does the church need to be talking about pornography? And you could even maybe speak to just some of what inspired you to, to do a whole doctor ministry project on this. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's uh, the kind of personal and it kind of works its way out to uh, kind of these just pragmatic ministry things. You know, personally, you know, most of my life, I, I've had some level of sexual addiction and, and exposure to pornography and using pornography. And it was, it was a long journey to uh, recovery and, 
Um, and a, a lot of that was outside the church, but a lot of that was inside the church. And there's varying uh, experiences that were encouraging and discouraging. But uh, I walked away from that experience and that, that hard season uh, being more convinced that the best place to talk about sexuality and to actually see recovery in areas of brokenness is the church, um, which I know is, is not uh, the, mo the most in instinctive kind of thought uh, when people think about what it means to, to learn better about sexuality and, and sexual health. Um, but when it comes to, to pornography, I, I mean, I have seen just countless people dealing with it um, in various ways. And um, I mean, the average age of exposure to pornography is 10 years old. Almost 70% of men watch it regularly, 45% of women. Um, and uh, the pornography is, I would say, the, the primary, not the exclusive, but the primary sexual formation engine in the church, mm. uh, not just in the culture, but in the church, uh, that there are so many people in almost any given church that um, over the course of a year have spent hours watching pornography and maybe minutes thinking about what the Bible has to say about sexuality. Um, and that's out of balance. Um, and so it, it, it shouldn't be surprising then that there's a lot of um, just sexual addiction, pornography, all kinds of other things that are, that are in the church. And there's just a lot of shame. And if we're really talking about what it means to recover from shame, the gospel is the best answer uh, for that. And so I, I really uh, do think it's just imperative that the church considers how to move towards people that have this as uh, a part of their story because uh, there's just so many people i know that whoever is watching this there are several people in the room that are struggling with pornography right now uh, and are terrified to talk about that for one reason or another and um, i would just love to see the church be a place where that, that feels more inviting to share that struggle uh, than it is shameful yeah, oh, that's great. That's great. I appreciate you sharing all that. Um, so one of the things you do in your uh, project is you, there's so many passages that could speak to the pornography struggle. Um, you chose to cover and really dig into Genesis 1, 26 to 27, Matthew, 20, Matthew 5, 27 to 30, and 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Um, and, and you, you dig pretty deep into each passage in your project, um, but I'd just love to hear um, a little bit of, you know, what are some of the most helpful ways that those passages speak into struggles with pornography? Uh, yeah, and, you know, for the sake of time, we'll uh, drill down into each of them. You know, when I think of the overarching theme of those passages, so, you know, Genesis 1 is... Uh, don't make man in our image and be fruitful and multiply. And, uh, Matthew 5, and, uh, the, the lust passage, and if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And First Corinthians 6, do you not know that you're, uh, that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, so honor your bodies and you know, flee sexual immorality and so forth. And I think what's clear in all three of those is, is two things, a, um, a, a seriousness about sexuality and a sacredness to sexuality uh, that... Um, that the, the sexuality is something that is very honored um, from from God, and sexuality came from God. Uh, you know, I, I used to teach theology at a high school, and you know, I would ask the students various questions about 
just various things to get their thoughts. And we would play a game where you know, you'd stand up. And if you strongly agree, go to this side of the room, strongly disagree, go to this side of the room, that would get the prompt. Like, um, there is absolute truth in the world or um, uh, the, the church is, is this, that, and the other. And I remember one prompt was the church, the prompt was the church is the best place to learn about sex and sexuality. Um, and every other question, there was a variety of agree to disagree. Uh, but on that prompt, the students all were strongly, uh, strongly disagree. Uh, the church is not uh, the best place to talk about sex and sexuality. And they talked about why that is and how that is. And, um, you know, the church is not safe, the church is judgmental, the church is uh, small minded, and so on and so forth. And then I asked them afterwards, like, okay, so if it's not the church, where is the best place to learn about sex yeah. and sexuality and it was fascinating the responses that i that i would get i think the most uh, grounded was you go to your physician go to your doctor um which that, that makes sense in some ways but most of the responses were ranging from uh yeah just try things out mm-hmm. um go to the internet uh ask your friends uh just just frankly, very alarming uh, thoughts about where to go to learn about sex and sexuality uh, and therefore to learn how it should be handled. Uh, and there's just a huge disconnect there. Um, and, and, and scripture is, is interwoven with sexual expression and not just kind of spiritualizing the Song of Solomons and so forth. Like there's, there's a clear um, tethering of our, our, our spirit, our soul, our body, and the sexual expression that comes from that. And so those three passages kind of talk about that, uh, lifting it up as sacred, but also when you don't treat it sacred, that that's actually very serious. Uh, like the Matthew 5 passage, uh, you know, Sermon on the Mount is, is a hard and lofty sermon by Jesus that you should walk away from it saying, Christ have mercy, because there's no way that I could ever measure up. Mm-hmm. Um, and Matthew 5, the lost passages is one of those. And that's one of the only places in the sermon where there's a connection between the sin that you commit and actually going to hell um that <clears throat> this it's better to, to 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 rip your arm off than to to go to gehenna which is often imagery about uh, about hell uh and so that that's very serious um and uh, i think we uh, in the church don't don't know how to uh, live into the sacredness and seriousness uh, that it often turns into shaming or it often turns into like silence Like don't talk about it because talking about it can create an issue or talking about it can can feel like you're being flippant I often tell people so sometimes I teach on this um, and often give the um, as an illustration the, the scene in Beauty and the Beast hmm. uh, where where Belle is she she's a prisoner in, in the Beast's uh, castle and there's not only gives one rule the one rule is like don't go into this wing and he doesn't say why but he tells her he tells her not to and she goes into the wing uh just being rebellious she walks in the wing she walks into a room she sees the beautiful flower and it's covered in glass and she goes into the room takes the glass off the flower and is about to touch it and the beast comes in and he loses it i mean it just goes into a rage like wow, how dare you all these different things and scares her away uh, from the castle uh, and i often feel like the church treats sexuality like that <laughs> like uh like uh teenagers or just people in general they have legitimate curiosity legitimate questions legitimate concerns and in an attempt to try to treat something that is really sacred and something serious you say don't go anywhere near it like don't go 
into the glass. Don't go to into the room. Don't even go to that side of the castle. Um, and that doesn't actually uh, address the curiosity. It doesn't actually address the questions and concerns. And I don't think God actually walls off uh, in that way. Uh, that, that, that's not the image that I see in scripture when he talks about what it means to treat something as sacred. It doesn't, it doesn't mean just keep it as far away from us as possible. Uh, he says, learn how, know how to treat it um, in the way that he has designed. So that's what I see in those scriptures, like what it means to honor uh, both body uh, generally, but in the sexual realm. And so uh, those, those really have kind of propelled me towards how to, how to talk about these things in various ways. Yeah, no, that's, that's super helpful. And um, yeah, I got a chance to read some of it and, and uh, really encouraged by ways that those passages speak into it. Um, you also get into in your project, um, just there's been a lot of research over the years on just the impact that um, pornography has on the people who um, engage in it. Uh, so I'd love for you to just kind of speak into what, what exactly does pornography do to those that look at it? Uh, yeah, it's, I'd say uh, pornography is holistic in its formation. Um, and so kind of every aspect of you is kind of touched by it. So uh, you know, physically and psychologically, you're being formed by, by pornography. So uh, there's a book, you know, uh, The Drug of the New Millennium, I think his name is Mark Castleman, uh, is a helpful resource, or uh, John uh, Fulbert, um, uh, The Harms Pornography, I forget the title of it. Uh, but these are just uh, uh, men that are very wise and understanding about uh, the, the neurology of pornography. Uh, and they're just very clear. And, and this isn't conjecture, like more and more research is coming out about the effects of pornography to the point uh, where people that don't have any kind of religious worldview are decrying it. I mean, it's, uh, it's been listed as a public health crisis. Um, it, it's, it is becoming clearer and clearer that it is objectively harmful to consume pornography. And one of those ways is it's evident is physically and psychologically that the, the, the dopamine pathways, neural pathways are being impacted, that it's likened to a chemical addiction to watch pornography in all the ways, heroin, like your brain actually activates similarly as when you're taking heroin. Um, so, <clears throat> and, and of course affects kind of under the hood, but it affects also uh, drive, uh, your sexual drive is, is impacted. It, uh, there are several studies show that the, the more you watch it, the harder it is to uh, keep and maintain um, sexual arousal. It, it affects your arousal template. Uh, so the things that are um, desirous are, are affected. And this is where John Fobert is really helpful uh, because he actually narrows in on uh, sexual violence of pornography, uh, that pornography actually uh, forms us to be more violent sexually. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that because you watch it, you're going to rape someone, uh, but there's a, a whole lot there in between watching pornography and rape that's actually still very concerning uh, because toxic decisions uh, make sense in toxic environments. And we live in an environment that is saturated by pornography. And the majority of pornography is actually very violent. There's, there's not tenderness, there's not intimacy, there's not 
actual a uh, conveying of affection. It is transactional. It is bodies coming together. And so uh, you can't watch that and not be affected by that, not be affected by what then I want to see happen when I want to express myself sexually or even interpersonally when you're communicating. Uh, all of that is, is, is factored in. So there's like physical, psychological things to it. There's also kind of social things uh, that uh, the, the more you, there's a, a connection between the amount of pornography you watch and your your coping skills, um, because per, many people use pornography as a way to pacify negative emotions. And so if you're stressed, if you're lonely, if you're insecure, if you're angry, um, angry is not talked about enough in this, but like kind of turbulent emotions are often pacified by pornography. And so you feel immediate relief because you feel disturbed and want to be done with it. But the, the long-term effects are you don't actually learn how to cope with turbulent emotions. Uh, so you are sad or angry or lonely. Um, if you are maturing, uh, you, you wrestle through how to self-soothe and you wrestle through how to respond. You wrestle through in the in the in the best ways you grow in your awareness you grow in your understanding of self you grow in how you're wired all these all these things are muted when you turn to pornography as a way to stop the the, the symptoms of, of anger right and so socially then you you enter into relationship with folks and you don't you don't know how to engage with them because friendships are not just happy-go-lucky uh, there's times when you're you're sad. There's times when you're frustrated with people. Uh, your job, you don't you don't know how to endure the stress of your job because when you're stressed, you turn to these external stimuli. Um, and so there's 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 social effects uh, that that come alongside this. And I think the most you know uh, most meaningful, most powerful uh, formation of all this is is the spiritual. Mm. Um, that uh, ultimately there there is a heart longing. Uh, that is God-given, that's placed inside of you, that you're trying to uh, address in pornography. Um, and one of the reasons why pornography is so addictive, aside from all the other things that I listed, uh, is that pornography, it, it creates a world where you are the center of it, and there is no harm there. Uh, everyone in this fantasy world wants to care for you, wants to bless you wants to see you experience your ultimate self-actualization um and so you you're drawn to it in a world that feels out of control uh, a world that feels very broken very hard uh, if you feel like you are failing if you feel like you're inadequate your fantasy world of pornography none of that will, will touch you you will be okay um, in pornography at least for these these minutes or hours that you're there and the reality is that that's touching on something spiritual, uh, that sense of belonging, uh, that, that sense of, of love and intimacy and connection, because we're all, uh, we're all, we are all born looking for someone looking for us. Uh, we, we are all born longing to experience connection and belonging and significance and identity and all these things. And so what, what's, what's ultimately most addictive about pornography is that it reaches to that soul level um kind of longings that are actually good um and for many people they're trying to stop the longings um but then you don't don't stop the longings you, you have to actually find a way to get those longings met in a better way so the opposite of addiction is not abstinence the opposite of addiction is connection 
Uh, if you really want to address your addiction, uh, the, the goal is not abstinence, abstaining from the addiction. That's the byproduct. What you actually should be looking for is to build better connection in your world mm -hmm. and in your life. I have never seen an addict that felt like they were well supported in their life. Um, most of the time, I mean, well, every time in my in my case, but I want to say most of the time to hold out for, you know, because I haven't talked to every addict, but every addict I've talked to feels very isolated. Uh, it feels like they are not having their needs met. They are not, they do not have rich, intimate relationships. Um, and, and that makes sense then why pornography uh, feels like a viable option to supplement what feels lacking in their lives, especially if they don't feel like they have the time and space to actually do the hard work of building true and lasting intimacy. Just going and watching pornography for a few minutes uh, feels like a quick fix, uh, but it's really just putting putting a Band-Aid on a cancer sore. It's just not gonna really heal or do anything. So yeah, so I, yeah, I feel like I can go go for, for a while on, on all those areas, but some of the, those are some of the features of uh, what pornography does to us and, and why it's, it draws us in and feels like a really good thing, um, but is really detrimental uh, to us in the long run. Yeah, so helpful. I mean, that's that's all stuff and more that, that we as Christians all need to be aware of and, and learning and understanding, uh, especially just when you think of how deceptive pornography can be and all the lies that it tells and, and truths like that that you've just shared just really help us see through uh, the lies and uh, that unfortunately we don't have the time to get into just the lies of pornography together. But, um, but yeah, uh, very helpful. Uh, I, it's, you know, your your project, kind of the, the, the uh, the place that you're going, I guess, with your project is kind of ultimately answering the question of just like how how can the church care for those and in ways that you're thinking through um, some of the best ways for the church to come around those struggling with pornography. So I'd love to just hear just from you um, and, and some of your experience and what you've learned. What are some of the best ways for the church to to come around those struggling with pornography? No, I think one is, uh, I just want to acknowledge that there's no quick solutions, uh, no quick fixes that I really feel like pornography is, a, is an epidemic in our culture. It's just very far reaching and even hard to categorize in, in some cases. And so to combat it can can feel overwhelming. Um, but I, so the part of the topic of uh, how I encapsulated my, my project was to say that this is about biblical sexual formation uh, and, and not just uh, abstaining from pornography, but that, that's a outworking of it that I had to be very narrow. But really my concern is like, what is biblical sexual formation? What does it mean to be formed around what God has created uh, in, in creation, uh, which one of those things is our sexuality and having a, a better articulation uh, what that means so that when counterfeits and deception and lies come, it, it makes better sense to hold on to truth. Um, and so, I mean, there's various things that you can do. So one thing is you know, considering uh, having a group that's designated for supporting uh, men and women, of course, separate not men groups, women groups um, that are struggling with pornography and uh, just have it as um, a recurrent thing. So for us, we have a group called One Seven. Uh, it's named after First John One Seven, and it's. And I'll, I'll read it real quick here. So it's, both we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. 
Um, and so when people are trying to, to grow from this sin, uh, yes, repentance, sanctification, you are being cleansed by the blood of Jesus. But also, if you are walking in the light, it is not just this private, interpersonal kind of uh, abstinence journey, but you're also in fellowship with other believers. Oh. That, that part of what it means to walk in the light and be in Christ is not just you are with Jesus, you are with his people as well. And so 1-7, the group is trying to, to answer that, trying to respond to that. We, we want to walk in the light together. And so providing that for men, or we're working on providing a group for women here uh, in the coming months. Uh, but we'll just consider that. I'd also say consider uh, how to incorporate sexuality into kind of the lexicon of ministry, mm -hmm. uh, meaning just it shouldn't feel like a weird um, flex to um, talk about sexuality. I think it's great that you're doing this class. And I think having recurrent things of that, of like you know, book recommendations or uh, referencing it in, in a sermon doing you know, the Sunday school class, things like that. We we did a conference um, in the fall called The Birds and the Bees, um, where it was geared specifically towards uh, families of little children, uh, kind of in, in anticipation uh, to uh, of the day that they will have more complex questions about sexuality. Uh, because again, average age of exposure to pornography is 10 years old, uh, 13 to 17 or 18 are the primary users of pornography. So pornography is very much so geared towards teenagers. Um, the exposure rate is increasing off the charts when you have smartphones. And, and even if you Google the wrong thing, it can kind of send you into a bad space. So I think <clears throat> kind of preparing for that in, in, in various ways, again, there's no magic bullet to that, but just having it on your radar. This is something that is saturated in our, in our church. Um, and we don't want people to feel like this is a shaming place for that. Um, and shame is hard. Shame is hard to address, but I think that's that's why the, the gospel is, is so beautiful. Um, and so those are some of the things. It's, it's regularly part of the lexicon of ministry and discipleship. Uh, so we have language around this, that we're not alarmist when it comes up, that we're not fearful, uh, that we're not awkward, uh, that we acknowledge that that is, that is a feature of the fall. And we trust that the gospel can can, can address that uh, in very specific and comprehensive ways. And so we keep learning in that, just like all these meaningful uh, topics that are addressed, that are impacting the church. Yeah, yeah. So helpful. I'll, um, I'm going to wrap it up there, but I appreciate you taking the time and, and just sharing some of the things God has been teaching you and, and um, yeah. working through you. And uh we will definitely be rooting for you as you cross the finish line on this project. I know you're not quite done Thank yet you. Uh, with your email. So, uh, April 1st uh, is when I do my oral defense. All right. So all right. you can say no. pro format. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll take note and, and be praying for you. And uh, yeah, hopefully maybe you could come preach or something at our church down the road and um, more people yeah. will get to know you. But it was great to, to have this space uh, with you. So thanks again. Uh, absolutely. Thank you, Ross. I'm really grateful. It's his doctor of ministry uh, at Southeastern uh, in Wake Forest. Welcome. <laughs> Just diving right in the deep end with us. And, and, uh, and it, it was awesome.
Cool. Oh, thank you. What are your What are your names? Mark and Catherine. Mark and Catherine. Good to meet you guys. Yes. I love what you said about the coping skills. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, I was that uh, was such a helpful point. I think you can, you know, you can talk about just how you know the dynamics of it, but in the practical sense, um, that is so often what can bring someone to that is, is coping with the challenges of life and it's a very easy, um, temporarily effective in a negative way thing. Yeah, it's really helpful. Yes, Ryan. Yes. a great point. Yep. Father, thanks for this chance to discuss these things, and um, as we continue this journey, just continue to help us and um, shape us and shape us more and more like Jesus, um, especially in this area, and um, pray all this in his name. Amen. All right.